0: Good morning, Good morning. Good morning. It's, a, it's a privilege to be here with you this morning and I bring you greetings from the brothers and sisters at First Scots in Beaufort. Uh, and, uh, we are very fond of our brothers and sisters here at Eastbridge. It was right here at Eastbridge, uh, the Presbytery meeting on uh, November of 2019 that I was examined for transfer into this Presbytery. So this is one of my very first introductions to Lowcountry Presbytery. Um, but without uh, further ado, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's word to Romans chapter 12. Our text this morning will be verses 14 through 18, <clears throat> Romans 12:14 through 18, and let's give Careful attention to this, because it's the very word of God. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one, evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Father in heaven, as we come to the Holy Scriptures, now we uh, pray that your Holy Spirit, who inspired them, who breathed them out, would be our teacher, Uh, you would speak to our hearts, and that the word would go forth as it did among the Thessalonians so long ago, not just in word, but also with power. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember a particular visit that my parents paid to Hillary and me and our boys years ago, and uh, my parents are longtime members of the PCA as well. And so while they were with us, obviously they... uh, came to church with us and attended worship with us. And uh, this was their first time to visit us in that particular place. We were living at the time, and so they are meeting all, anyone they met at that church, they were pretty much meeting for the first time. And I remember distinctly, even to this day, the response of one of the older ladies in the church when she met my mom and dad. She was standing there, and there were my parents, and there I was. And she looked at all of us, and she said to me, well, we know you're not adopted because she saw the family resemblance so strongly there. Um, and that, uh, we, we experience that, don't we? You know, parents tend to look like their children. You can see the mother and you can see the father in the child. Um, and in a strange way, that's a little bit like what this passage that we're looking at this morning is about. It's about, in a sense, showing the family resemblance. In Paul's great letter to the church at Rome, his magnum opus, uh, as many consider it to be, he has this very simple overarching form uh, of, the, of the letter itself, the form that many of Paul's letters have. Basically, the first half or so of the letter uh, consists of um, primarily doctrinal content. And then, at some point, there's a shift And from that point, that shifting point to the end of the book, it's, it's much more practical and more application oriented, we might say. And that kind of landmark, uh, continental divide in Paul's letter to the Romans occurs at chapter 12. After you've had all this profound and Glorious teaching about justification by grace through faith and God's sovereignty in the salvation of sinners. Then we come to Romans 12, which begins with, I appeal to you, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. And then from that point on, mostly to the end of this letter, it's Paul's, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, unpacking for us what it means. To present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. How do we do that? How do we live for God? And these verses that we're looking at this morning are are part of that message. Instructions on the Christian life. You want to know how to live as a Christian? Go to these verses. Go to these chapters of Romans. Paul lays it out verse after verse after verse. And you might have, if, if you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, These verses that we just read together might have sort of that same sense, that same feel to them. There's an idea in one verse and then a new idea in the next, sort of like in those latter chapters of the book of Proverbs. But these verses and this scripture calls us to be imitators of Christ because all the things that we're instructed to do in these verses are things that Christ did. And we're to be imitators of him in that. We're to live lives that reflect him, that reflect Christ. Live lives so that we show his likeness the same way I physically show the likeness of my parents. We, in our manner of life, need to show forth the likeness of Jesus. And these verses tell us how to do that. Followers of Christ prove themselves to be the children of God as they imitate the Son of God. Followers of Christ prove themselves to be children of God as they imitate the sons, the son of God. Excuse me. Now, verse 14 has as, I think, a central theme, love your enemies. Look at it again with me. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That's God's command for me, his command for you. And it's no small matter, is it? It's not an easy thing. This is actually above and beyond normal human expectations and standards of behavior. Love your enemies. And the text specifically says, bless those, not not those who look at you the wrong way. It doesn't say bless those who hurt your feelings Or fail to show you the respect that you feel you're uh, worthy of. It doesn't say bless those who are unkind. It says bless those who persecute you. Those are strong words. And if you can do that, then all the rest is easy. By that I mean, if you can bless those who persecute you, all the lesser offenses are Small potatoes. And this is not a command that's unique to the writings of Paul. The Lord Jesus himself taught us to do this. In fact, uh, one of the scripture readings that happened earlier in our service of worship, there was a reading from Luke. We have the parallel passage here from Matthew in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, if you would like, like to turn there with me. Matthew 5, verses 43 through 45. Jesus is correcting here in the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of the misunderstandings that his own people had about God's commands, God's law, God's will for their lives. And he says, beginning in Matthew 5:43, "You have heard that it was said, "You shall love your enemy love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you." so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Kind of meditating just for a moment on those words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. It's a point of application for us right away. One of the most loving things you can do for your enemy is to pray for him, to pray for her. Pray for your enemies. Pray for their salvation. Pray for their good. Pray for God's blessing upon them. Because it's hard to hate someone that you're praying for. Love your enemies. That's one facet of that broader command that Jesus gave. When he was asked what's the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And subsumed under that broader category of neighbor is your enemy, because as the parable of the Good Samaritan taught us, your enemy is whoever you, excuse me, your neighbor is whoever you encounter. And the fact is, sometimes your enemy and your neighbor are one and the same. that difficult coworker, that relative who's so hard to get along with. That boss who's so unreasonable, or that difficult employee or client. To some degree or other, any of those could be thought of as enemies, and we're called to love them. We're called to pray for them. Peter also taught this, 1 Peter 3, verse 9 Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So this is the teaching of Scripture. We see it from Paul. We see it from Peter. We see it from the Lord himself. And you know what? Paul was a recipient. He himself was a recipient of this very kind of love. He was loved by his enemies. You know what I'm talking about? In Acts chapter 8, Paul was ravaging the church. Stephen, one of the first deacons, had been stoned to death, and Paul stood by approving of it. And then, spurred on by that zeal for the blood of Christians, Paul goes on this systematic rampage, driving Christians out, hauling men and women off into jail. And many of the Christians, perhaps the majority of the Christians, had to flee from Jerusalem. One of the ones who we know know fled was a guy by the name of Philip who was one of the other deacons. So we know his story, but we also know that as a co-first deacon, he would have been close to Stephen. And his friend Stephen was just put to death by this fellow Paul. Well, Philip flees. He goes down to Samaria. He preaches the gospel there. Then he goes on a missionary journey up the Mediterranean coast, and he ends up in Caesarea. And years later... Who shows up? The Apostle Paul. And where does he stay when he's in Caesarea? He stays in the home of Philip. Let's say Eastbridge for a minute is actually the church in Caesarea. And word gets around the congregation, hey, the Apostle Paul's coming through town. And somebody says, hey, Philip, can you put him up? And Philip is like, Can't somebody else do this? Surely somebody in the congregation has a room where Paul and his traveling companions can stay. No, Philip, whose friend was murdered by Paul and who was chased out of Jerusalem by Paul, welcomes Paul. He loved his enemy. And we're called to do the same. And that sounds like a tall order, doesn't it? Have you ever read or heard these words, maybe even this morning, and thought, I just can't do that. Paul was one thing. Philip was a great guy, I'm sure. But I don't know if I can hack that. I don't know if I can cut it. I don't know if I can love my enemy. And if you're sitting there saying, I can't, I say to you, you're right. You can't. Not in your own strength, not in your own virtue, not in your own power, but you can through the Holy Spirit. That's why God gave you the Holy Spirit, so that you can do the things that man can't ordinarily do, that women can't ordinarily do. Love your enemies. Well, verse 15 teaches us that we should sympathize with others. Let's look at it again. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. In other words, we have two sides of the same coin here. And the first side of the coin is, be genuinely happy for and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. People who are experiencing good things, be glad along with them for the good that they're experiencing or that they've received. And that sounds normal to us, doesn't it? Sounds like common sense, but it's not always quite as easy as it might first seem. For example, let's say you're a single person and you want to be married. You dearly want to be married. You prayed for God to bring you a godly spouse. And then he brings a godly spouse to your best friend. Will you be able to rejoice with him or her? What about the young couple who wants to have children they've been trying for a long time and they've been praying and then a different couple in the church announces that they're pregnant, they're going to have a baby can that couple that's still waiting still praying, still hoping starting to lose heart can they rejoice with this other couple who's expecting maybe who's expecting their second or third And you're praying, Lord, they've got three, four children. Now, is it too much for us to just have one even? Can you still rejoice with them? It's not easy all the time, is it? What about somebody who got the promotion that you wanted and that you thought you deserved or got hired for that position that you wanted? It's not always easy to rejoice with those who rejoice, but just like loving your enemy... This is an evangelical grace. Sometimes we need the power of the Holy Spirit to do even that. Well, the other side of that coin, rejoicing with those who rejoice, is to share in the sorrows of those who are going through grief. That's also fairly common to human society. Otherwise, we wouldn't have racks and racks of sympathy cards in the drugstore or at the, at the Hallmark store. So we know how to send a sympathy card, and we know it's proper to express your condolences when someone's grieving, but we are called to share in the sorrows of those who are grieving. The thing is, we don't really like being sad. Being sad isn't fun. And it can be difficult even to be in the presence of someone who you know is going through a hard time and they're grieving. You don't know what to say. You're not sure what not to say, it's hard. It can be. But I want to note along with you the, the wisdom of Solomon on this from Ecclesiastes chapter seven. Ecclesiastes seven, two says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Why? For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. He goes on a couple of verses later to say, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So ask yourself, would you, where would you rather go? Rather go to a party or rather go to a funeral? Which one appeals more? I got some pastoral advice uh, very early in my ministry from an older gentleman with many years of experience, and his, his advice to me and some other uh, young men was, walk to weddings, run to funerals. What he meant by that is, you be sure you're there. That's where people need you. It's not always comfortable, but a grieving brother, a grieving sister needs the presence of his or her brothers and sisters. Now, as far as the rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn theme, there's no direct parallels to that in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but it is a very clear application of of what we call the golden rule. When you're sorrowing, it comforts you to have somebody with you, doesn't it? Well, then doesn't it stand to reason that if you're going to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that you mourn with those who mourn and that you rejoice with those who rejoice? That process, that whole package is part of the Christian life. It's part of life together as the body of Christ. So Hebrews 13, verse 3 says... Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. 1 Corinthians twelve twenty six. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice. Together. Sympathize with others. Both sides of the coin, rejoice and grieve. And then finally, these three verses, verses 16 through 18, teach us uh, to be peacemakers. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Be a peacemaker. Christians are commanded to live harmoniously, or as the text says, to be of the same mind. That's one way of translating it. Be of the the same mind. Live in harmony. Uh, With our neighbor, of course, with whoever that may be, The application is fairly general. It says at the end of verse 18, uh, verse verse 17, do what is honorable in the sight of all. End of verse 18, uh, live peaceably with all, brother or sister in Christ or not, neighbor or not. But especially with the brother in Christ, especially with the sister in Christ, we are called to peace. We're called to live together in peace and in harmony, with one another, as the text says. So that's, I think, a very clear reference to the body of Christ, your fellow Christians, the congregation. And see, the Holy Spirit knew very well. Of course, he does. He's omniscient. But he knew that we needed extra instruction in this matter, and that's why we have three verses worth of it right here. And one of the applications that the Holy Spirit makes is, don't be haughty. Don't be proud. Think for just a moment of that haughty person that you really enjoy being around. There's a blank in your mind right now, isn't there? Nobody likes being around a proud person, a haughty person. So why would we want to be proud or haughty? Why should we? Shouldn't we try to mortify that? Of course we should. Don't be haughty, the scripture says. Instead, associate with the lowly. In Luke 14, where Jesus is giving instructions, and he's kind of rebuking the Pharisees for the way they were haughty and proud and liked to take the, the best seats at, at, at feasts and in the synagogue. And Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's saying, you see what the Pharisees do? Look, they, they always try to take the best seats for themselves. He says, I don't want you to be like that. You go and sit in the lowest place. The word... Lowly here, when it says associate with the lowly, that word can mean humble. Uh, It can be translated those who are downcast. And what the scripture's teaching us is basically to cast your lot in with those people. Say, I'm one of them. I'm with them. And the thing is, that's where you're going to find the Lord. One of the most memorable sermons I've ever heard, I don't necessarily remember uh, all the content of the sermon, but the title of the sermon is Where May God Be Found? And it was a sermon on the text of uh, Isaiah 57, particularly verse 15, where God says, I dwell in the high and holy place. You know, that place where none of us is worthy to be that place where not one of us can get. That's where he dwells. Well, how do we reach God then? Well, praise the Lord, there's another place where he dwells. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. You can find God in the exalted place or you can find him in the crushed places. Go there, brothers and sisters associate with the lowly. Don't think of yourselves as wise, the text says. A couple of my favorite passages from Proverbs support this idea. Proverbs 3, 7 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And if you've ever studied any, uh, anything about Hebrew poetry, you know that one of the characteristics of Hebrew poetry is it's set up in, in parallelisms, right? And, those parallelisms, uh, the, the second strophe in a, in a couplet will either reinforce the first or explain it in some way or it will present a, um, a, a contrast. And that's what we have here. Do you see how in Proverbs 3, 7 turning away from evil and fearing the Lord is contrasted with being wise in your own eyes? As if to say to us those two things are contradictory they don't, they don't go together they don't mesh they don't gel or if you uh, if you wanted to do a little bit of scripture reading this afternoon and maybe hadn't decided what exactly you'd read read Proverbs 26 and start from the beginning of the chapter because it's this litany of verses verse after verse after verse about the plight and about the uh, the undoing Of the fool, over and over again, this bad thing about the fool, and this is going to befall the fool, and these are the problems that the fool is going to have, verse after verse after verse, until there's this sort of instructive climax in verse 12, where after all of that, it says, Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. So, I don't know what a stronger caution we could have against being wise in our own eyes. Our text goes on to say, don't repay anyone for evil. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. That is the easiest thing in the world to do, isn't it, though? Isn't it so easy just to do tit for tat? Well, he did it to me, she did it to me, I'm going to do it right back. It's the easiest thing in the world to do in our flesh, and it's the worst thing we can possibly do. Remember, we already read 1 Peter 3.9, and Peter said, don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay reviling for reviling. When you do that, there's a name for doing that. It's called revenge. And revenge, according to every person, passage of scripture that you can find on the subject. Revenge is anti-Christ. Instead, it says, do what's honorable. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Payback is not honorable. And we don't respect or appreciate a vigilante spirit in someone else. And it's right that we not respect that or pay regard for it. Payback is not honorable. This, the text says, do what's right in the sight of all men, in the sight of everyone. Second Corinthians eight twenty-one says, we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. So that should be our aim to be honorable in the eyes of a world that's looking on, to live upright lives. The thing about all the things in these just few verses that we're looking about, looking at this morning is that everything in them that is prohibited, they're all things that come very naturally to us. All things that are very naturally for our fallen flesh. There's things we have to unlearn as followers of Christ. Now we've got a summary statement, I think, in verse 18 of this peacemakers section. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Um, and I think there's, there's some two very distinct qualifications to the command the command itself uh, the essence of it is live peaceably with all but there are two qualifications that demonstrate for us how very practical and realistic the scriptures are the first one is if possible meaning sadly that there will be times when it's not possible It won't always be possible to live peaceably with everyone. And then the second one is, so far as it depends upon you. In other words, brothers, sisters, do all that you can to live at peace with others. And then if it just can't be done, then you've done what you ought to have done. Endeavor to live at peace with everyone. And if it cannot be, see to it that you sought to do your uttermost, to seek that peace. Be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. Jesus taught this as well. Matthew 5, verse 9, in the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, and what will they be called? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Being a peacemaker is one of the ways you show forth the family resemblance. Followers of Christ prove themselves. You prove yourselves to be children of God as you imitate the Son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. There is none like him. And his followers, you and I, we're children of God, but we're children of God by what? By adoption. But the glorious thing about the family of God is even adopted children can show the family likeness. And we do. Because the Holy Spirit is working that in us. Through the enabling grace of the Holy Spirit, the more we live as becomes the followers of Christ, the more we take on that family likeness, the more we show that we are children of God. And let's remember our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he, of course, is the the highest example of everything we've read about this morning, everything that we've considered. Did he love his enemies? He loved his enemies so much that he laid down his life for them. Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we came with an offering, not when we made it up to him somehow or did our best to try to do that. While we were still sinners, Christ gave his life for us, his enemy. Does he sympathize with us? Oh, yes, he does. He sympathized with us so much that he became flesh. He dwelt among us. And obviously, Jesus is the greatest of all peacemakers, isn't he? He made peace between God and man, between sinners and the Almighty. He made peace so that you are no longer aliens and strangers. You're no longer far off, but you've been brought near by the precious blood of Christ. You've been made fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. You've been made members of God's household through Christ, the great peacemaker. And by his grace, you are Sons, daughters of God, let's, by his power, by the power of his spirit, endeavor daily to show forth that family likeness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for not leaving us in our deadness and sins and trespasses, but making us alive in Christ. Thank you for uh, giving us to him. Thank you for bringing us to yourself through him and making us your children by adoption. And we thank you that even we adopted children can show forth the family likeness. We pray you continue to bring about the good work you've begun in us, and that you would begin that work for the first time in many, many people all over the world, even this very day as your word goes forth. We pray these things for the honor and the glory of our elder brother, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.